Hello, and welcome to ClapperCast, the global film podcast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Diego Andalus, and today I'm happy to be joined by Carson Tamar. Hello, hello. Farida Badamosi. Hi. And Ben Rolf. Hey. On today's episode, we are discussing the latest edition of the New York Film Festival, the first major fall festival in the United States of America. So I know we all were able, were lucky enough to attend through accreditation. So let's just start discussing this festival. So I'd like to start with shorts. I know I didn't get a chance to see many shorts and I'm not sure you guys got to see much shorts either. But one short that I saw that was actually put, I believe in the centerpiece section as a feature, but it's still a short length is Pedro Almodovar's um, The Human Voice. And that is starring Tilda Swinton, um, of course, directed by Almodovar. And it's 30 minutes long, so it's not your typical short. And it does give Almodovar enough time to kind of like explore the character. And you can tell that this is one of those shorts where, again, it's a story director um, going into the the short realm and just having a whole canvas to play with. You can tell he's doing exactly what he wants. He's just having fun and enjoying all of it. It is, I'd say it's very similar to actually his past feature, Pain and Glory. And it's very interesting to see just how it's like one character, just Tilda Swinton, um, just in a conversation and uh, with her AirPods. And I found that kind of cool that like they're adding more of the modern sections to that. But it's really just her performance in kind of like some surreal set, but it's like an apartment set and you don't really know exactly what it is. You don't know if she's an actress. They leave a lot of stuff kind of ambiguous. But I liked how through the conversation she's having with, you don't know who exactly she's conversing with, but you're kind of able to find more about her character. And I, I found that very well. And just overall, it was a great little short. Honestly, I'd be, I'd be happy to see that expanded into a feature because the end kind of leaves it open-ended. And just the visual style, you can tell it's very Almodovar-esque. And I think, I believe it was shot during the pandemic, actually. Um, so I think... That was, again, one of those first few productions that started and finished after the pandemic or after the pandemic had started. And so it was interesting to see how they kind of pulled that off with all those restrictions. So you guys, uh, have you guys heard about that short yet? I know it played at London and a couple of others. Um, I heard about it and I actually tried to see it at New York and also London Film Festival, but it sold out like crazy and I missed the press screenings. I don't know why I missed them, but I was trying to catch it and I will catch it, but I just haven't got to it yet. But it is releasing uh, in UK cinemas, I think in November, so I'll catch it then. Yeah, definitely this is one I was interested in. I didn't get a chance to see it just because I actually didn't attend the pseudo accreditation. So it was like, oh, do I really wanna pay $12 for a short? Not really. But my question to you, Diego, is obviously like, the shorts category at the Oscars are already very like weird to try to predict. Do you think that this is something that could break in there? Or do you think it's positioning as like being a spotlight, like quote unquote feature would hurt its chances there? Well, I believe it's being released as Ben was saying by Sony Pictures Classic um, throughout kind of just globally in theaters as a feature. Well, it's like presented as a feature, but obviously with a short length. I honestly don't know because looking back to previous Oscar seasons, yes, there have been shorts in those years that have big names attached. And honestly, in the short section, you can tell that big names is not something that really influences awards voters. However, the fact that it has a major studio behind it, like Sony Pictures Classics, could help it a little bit because I know that 
a couple years ago, the short skin uh, won actually best short film. I know it was very controversial, but one of the reasons that it won was because they had Fox Searchlight from day one. And if it gets that similar push, it could work out. But like I said, in the previous um, in previous years, big names have directed or starred in shorts, and that really hasn't swayed the Academy as much as it does with the features. So at this point, honestly, I couldn't tell you because there are also uh, some other big name shorts, but I would definitely have this in contention. No, I was just going to say it was one of like two bigger name shorts because there was the other one with uh, Matt Damon. So I wasn't, I tend not to go for the shorts with the bigger names, largely because in terms of like qualifying, uh, those films tend to be seen again eventually. Um, I do think it's particularly interesting that it is being released as if it were a feature, um, especially given its length. Um, shorts in general tend to be 40 minutes and below. Um, so it's interesting that it's being, it was uh, featured as a feature. Um, and I imagine that probably was like filmmaker choice. Um, and because of it, I do wonder whether or not it would qualify. Well, just to wrap this up, I believe that the Oscar limit for shorts, there's no like theatrical release um, rules. I think it's just as long as you're under, I believe, 45 minutes, you can qualify as a short. Although at least I know Carson has, as well has attended previous like uh, Oscar qualification short screenings. Um, and most of the shorts tend to be around 10 to 20 minutes. From what I've seen, I went to the one last year. So I, I feel like honestly, because of the big name, it could get in. But at this point, like I said, I feel it's too early to kind of be able to narrow down the shorts field. Yeah, I mean, this is undoubtedly going to compete in the shorts other than features. I think it is 40 minutes or 45, one of the two. Um, so this one definitely will be considered a short. There's always a few that are like 30 to 40, at least like one or two. So it's definitely like, it just, I think it fully just depends on the quality and like the style it takes um, and just a lot of luck. So we'll see. And so now do you guys want to move on to the documentaries? Because I know there was a lot of documentaries at New York and just overall in the festival season, we've seen just some really, really strong picks for documentaries. So I'm curious to hear what you guys thought of those. Um, yeah, the docs this year were an interesting mix of films. There was the coronavirus film that everyone's talking about. There's the absolutely adorable um, Truffle Hunters. Um, so it was a nice, it was an interesting mix, especially since... Um, this is like technically a uh, shorter version, well, not really shorter, but like not nearly as many films version of film festivals. So it was interesting to see which stocks that they chose this year. Yeah, so a couple that I really liked were, um, well, 76 Days, as you were saying, the, the COVID doc was really good. I found that it was, it was one of the best examples of Cinema Verita in a documentary in at least throughout the whole festival season. Um, it could have been a little bit more wide reaching, kind of how totally under control recently was, although that was more American focused. But because 76 Days really just focused on the hospital and the, the doctors and didn't really kind of explore how China itself was handling this pandemic. But for what it was and for what it was trying to be, I found it to be very effective. It dragged at some places, but overall, I found it to be a very effective and powerful doc. I don't know where it's going to end up going in award season, because I feel like this award season, there's really going to be that one slot for the COVID doc, because if there isn't like a one, um, well, obviously not designated slot, but you know how things happen. Like there's only like one slot for this type of movie. 
Um, and I feel like if people don't really go in with that mindset, then the whole slate is going to be COVID docs, which could be a possibility. I find it interesting that you preferred um, totally under control because I actually preferred 76 days. I think this is the most haunting film of 2020 quite possibly. And that says a lot because this has been a haunting year for cinema. Um, I really appreciated the fly on the wall approach actually getting us into these hospitals, showing not just numbers on a screen, but actually showing the loss of life and the pain and the suffering that this causes. Cause it makes you realize like, yes, we're starting to reach this point of normalcy now in the pandemic where yes, it sucks. And yes, it's still dangerous, but like things are kind of starting to come back. People are starting to push. Like it's starting to kind of get the wheels turning again. And it makes you realize like there are legitimate, like horrifying consequences to this. Um, and I genuinely was just floored by that documentary. Um, it's just continuing 2020. I've said it on the podcast like all year at this point, but this has been an incredible year for documentaries. Like I legitimately think this might be one of the best years for documentaries ever. And there were quite a few actually that really stuck out to me. Hopper and Wells, like as someone who loves film, that is a incredibly engaging, just two hour conversation uh, between Dennis Hopper and Orson Welles, and they're just sitting in a room eating dinner, talking about life and politics. And that gives just a really like wildly interesting perspective because they're like thinking, kind of meditating on the future of Hollywood. But in the 2020 context, that is the past of Hollywood. And you get these two sides looking at this like mystical time in Hollywood that we all kind of like think of in these very weird terms. Um, and it's just such an engaging documentary, like for a film that takes place in one room that just sits there and is just a casual conversation over dinner. Um, it's one of my favorite films of the year. Another one really, really stuck out to me was The Monopoly of Violence. Uh, this is a conversation on brutality and uh, physical uh, attacks in protest and riots, specifically in France is where it's framed. But, you know, obviously this is a conversation that can take on a larger meaning um, with how 2020 has gone. It's just been a very, very relevant topic and how this film actually starts its dialogue. It clearly has a side that it's on, but it gives everyone a voice to speak their truth and speak their conversation and actually have this really tough dialogue that is very emotional but it handles it in a really well crafted and mature way which I really really appreciated and then another one that I really loved was uh, MLK's FBI this is a look at Martin Luther King Jr and the like lengths that the FBI was willing to go to kind of tear him down and speaking of haunting films I mean this one is truly haunting you know with how current politics are in current political situation this is another film that despite looking at the past um but all this footage is from the past um but it's so relevant to today and it's so haunting in that way um Diego I believe you also saw the film right what are your thoughts on yeah that? yeah so actually Hopper Wells has been one that I had my eye on I unfortunately missed it but was it more of a kind of in conversation doc kind of like uh, what you'd see in as a behind the scenes of of just like other features like for instance I know Netflix did something similar for the Irishman where it was just uh, Martin Scorsese and his actors just sitting around talking at a table or is it more in-depth or like framed in a different way it's incredibly in-depth I mean it's framed you don't even see Orson Welles there's just like there's multiple cameras walking around the room uh shooting Hopper 
but it's incredibly in-depth because Orson Welles really provokes, like it's not just a normal, like calm conversation. Orson Welles is really trying to get a reaction. He pushes Hopper, um, even on personal topics, which like stands out obviously as being like kind of, oh, that's like a weird like friendship dynamic. But Hopper will be like, oh, I don't really want to talk about my parents. But then like Orson pushes him. So it's a very like aggressive, very like weird, like they're switching in and out of characters. Like it, but it is just a conversation. Like don't go in expecting anything more. It all is just in one room focusing on one subject, even with the different cameras. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That sounds like it has, it, it's going to be great. And the Monopoly of Violence is also another one that I've kept my eye on. But one that, as you say, I did get the chance to watch was MLK FBI. I found it to be framed in a very engaging way. It did drag at some places. Like I found it to be a little bit slowly paced because there were a couple of things that I'd say are pretty well known and that it, it does sometimes function better as an after school special rather than an informative documentary. But I really appreciated at the end where they kind of talked about what is going to be the effect of some of these tapes being released in the next few years and how people should expect to receive them to ensure that MLK's legacy is not tarnished any further. And I know, Ben, uh, you wanted to say a couple of things about the documentaries as well. Well, I just wanted to say that I was very interested in seeing the Hopper Wells documentary because I love Orson Wells, one of the best directors ever. Obviously, Citizen Kane, but like, lady from Shanghai and everything like so I'm super interested in that and Dennis Hopper is again one of the all-time great actors so I was like I didn't know about this film before the festival and then I saw it and I missed it I just missed it just in the nick of time so I mean hearing you guys talk about it I I really want to watch it like I can't wait to see it finally. So the documentary that I actually really enjoyed was Truffle Hunters um it is, it's just really a, a lovely, it's a lovely story. Uh, it's rare when you watch documentaries, a lot of documentaries, especially this particular year are filled with like really heart-wrenching stories. Um, Time is another fantastic documentary that's very high on the list of documentaries in the running for um, the Oscar. Um, it's been talked about consistently. Truff Hunters is like kind of a very different kind of story. It's very much, it's a the smaller story of a, a man and his dog um and like i really appreciated what the documentary did and like documentaries have a really have a reputation for being a little soul crushing um so i really appreciated having a documentary that kind of like moves beyond that um especially in this like group of documentaries that they had at new york film festival i really think there was an interestingly curated list and truffle hunters is really lovely and has been doing the rounds as well um and i believe will be released later this year yeah, if you need like the best thing for 2020, I think is just to watch this documentary with a bunch of old, like elderly Italian men with like all their dogs, just like hanging out, going, hanging out in the forest, like just being adorable together. Um, this is such a just cute, genuinely cute like film, but also one with like, there is still emotional depth, especially about like the passing of the torch and how like the old like ways are dying. And there's all these new ways and everyone's kind of trying to get in and like the artistic value of some things are being lost. Like this is a really well put together documentary. Um, and I really hope people get a chance to see it. I believe as of now it's being released on Christmas theatrically, which makes me terrified. Uh, that no one's going to see this film but you know hopefully when it comes to VOD people check it out or if it releases straight to VOD or whatever but it's really 
a cleansing experience. And one that I saw that you've seen as well, which was just monstrous, was um, City Hall. So I kind of want to hear what you thought about that, because I believe it was about four hours. Is that correct? Four and a half. Four and a half hours of just like Boston government doing its thing. Just a lot of, you know, it's, it's long. It has its moments. Like undoubtedly there's great moments within this film that finds great nuance and like a look at the city. If you're from Boston, I assume this is going to really, really do wonders for you a lot of the time. Uh, But with that runtime, it's also a lot of dead air. If you see them go to a presentation, chances are you're sitting through most of that presentation. You're sitting through most of the meeting. If you see a meeting, Um, it's a film that really just doesn't have a good edit. I think there's an incredibly engaging hour and 30 minute film here. Uh, but unfortunately, they just keep all the dead weight. So it's really hard to recommend because I don't think this film is very accessible to most audiences, even if it was completely engaging for the complete four and a half hour runtime. I don't think a lot of audiences would sit through that. And even, I mean, as it is, that's not a fully engaging four hour and 30 minute runtime. There's little sprinkles here and there of really incredible dialogue and incredible ideas and incredible perspectives. Um, but it's a lot of dead air. Yeah, I don't know if maybe that was done because I'm not familiar with the director, but maybe at least from what I've seen from um, just kind of like hearing about the film, uh, it I think it was done kind of just to kind of like emphasize uh, emphasize just kind of like the just the like the bland, just the um, very um, uh, I don't know why I'm blanking on the word, but sorry, the very bland and kind of just clinical approach to the government that these people are taking. So maybe that's why they wanted to show all the dead weight. But I do agree that a shorter edit, even though it maybe wouldn't fully talk about the point that the director wanted, I feel it would definitely be more accessible to major audiences because I do not see many people wanting to watch this film at its four and a half hour runtime. I mean, to be clear, throughout his filmography, he's been known for having these long documentaries. This is on the longer side, but still there's some that have been even longer. He really seems to thrive with just showing like the mundane everyday life and trying to find the nuance within that, which is effective at a point, but also like at a point your films have to be accessible. I mean, I guess they really don't need to be. If you're like good with your work and you're happy with what you're doing, you know, go for it. Who am I to tell you that you're doing it wrong? But like, if you want this to go to audiences and be seen, it has to have that balance of being accessible and being, you know, what you, the project you want it to be. And I think he just needs to find an editor. He tries if he wants that to make these films shorter and more accessible though again if he just wants to have these epic you know five-hour films and just that really just captures life you know he's doing that in an effective matter so good for him so one film that I actually found it took advantage of an a good editor and was paced pretty brilliantly to make a compelling film that did um successfully convey his point was actually time I found it to be Once again, it's one of those documentaries that takes kind of like a narrative feature approach because I feel like sometimes like documentaries just go with talking heads and like that's it. But I feel like this was, again, another great example of Cinema Verita and just the fact that it's just such a heart-wrenching story of like this family just in like mourning. And it it reminded me a lot of in terms of Arrival, kind of like those sequences where they kind of are showing the family life uh, before anything has even happened. And those parts really touched me, especially with the score. The score was incredible in this film. And just, I feel like the way it was put together and the fact that they decided to take risks with it, 
and kind of frame it as a narrative film rather than a traditional documentary just really resulted in something that really, really worked for me. And Carson, you saw this one too, correct? I did, yeah. I, I echo a lot of your points. I think it's really has a great emotional core to it. Um, I mean, what a compelling, just authentically beautiful story. And what a beautiful look at like what filmmaking and what making filmmaking more accessible can mean to some people, right? Like this is not a traditionally made documentary. Um, it's a lot of home style video and it's just a great showcase of like the power of film, not necessarily just for, you know, our tours who are out there trying to make these, you know, well-crafted artistic statements, but just for capturing like the raw honesty of people's lives. Like, I think this is a really powerful film. And yeah, so that concludes our documentary section. And as we said before, this is a pretty stacked year for documentaries and another stacked category that I personally believe is more stacked than normal as well is that of international feature films. So there were quite a few here that were some standouts. So I'm interested in hearing what you guys thought of this kind of section of the festival. So the film that I particularly enjoyed was I Carry You With Me, which is a joint film. So it'll be interesting to see how they run it between Mexico and the United States. Um, and it is a really fantastic blend of documentary and feature film. Um, the director, Heidi Ewing, had actually not done narrative before prior to this film. Um, so she was known for doing documentaries. And then um, in the film, just it's another film, I guess this year I was gravitating story, towards stories that like made me feel good because it's, it's a rough year. <laughs> and like this film is like uh, the story of, it just really, and it's extremely well done. Um, the way it blends narrative and documentary, especially because there's like the transition scene, there's this beautiful like train scene that essentially transitions the story from the narrative part to the documentary. Um, and the actors are phenomenal in it. Um, I believe the actors have all been um, put on lists for like um, actors to watch in Mexico now, which is really awesome. Um, and it tells the story of this, uh, these two men who fall in love in Mexico and then uh, one immigrates to the United States for a better life. And then uh, the other one eventually follows him, which is kind of a spoiler. But like, um, but it is, it's it's just ultimately like the power of love. It really talks about immigration in a way that we don't often see in films because often in films we have immigrating because you have nowhere else to go. Um, and this film very much was talking about like what it means to like, leave where you're from literally for a better life because you want a better opportunity and you can see it somewhere else. And also like the heart rate, the heart wrenching effect of separation, which is a lot of the documentary part, like what it means to be separated from the people you care about. And it's a film very much structured around love, um, their love for each other, but their love for their family and their love for their community. Um, and it's just, it's, I think it's absolutely stunning. Um, I do wonder again, how it's going to be run, if it's going to be run purely as an international film, given that it is a joint production. And from what I know, Sony Pictures Classic has picked this one up. And I believe it's on the Mexican shortlist for best international feature submissions. Um, however, I do feel like it's a missed opportunity. And this film could have been kept for the 2022 Oscars. Because let's be honest here, right now the race for, Mexican, for the Mexican submission is dead heat between New Order and I'm No Longer Here. New Order, of course, another buzzy title in the festival that actually didn't go to New York, but has been going through the festival circuit to controversy, but to high praise and to pretty much, um, to high praise, to both high praise and controversy. But 
I'm no longer here, sweeped the Mexican equivalent of the Academy Awards recently. So right now it's kind of a race between those two. And I've noticed that I Carry You With Me has kind of been left in the dust. There's always a possibility for an upset and that that one gets selected. But I feel like, honestly, this film could have done better if it had been pushed and submitted as a tw- in the 2022 Oscars. Because I don't know if Mexico has any films coming out then, especially regarding the pandemic. And honestly, this does also speak to the fact that this is just a personal opinion, but I really think that the Academy should do away with the rule of one film per country. Because we've seen it happen multiple times before with France last year where both uh, Les Miserables and uh, Portrait of a Lady of Fire were competing. One got selected. That was still a worthy one, but it also denied another one that was very worthy as well um, from being selected for the International Feature Oscar. So that's just a personal opinion. I really think the Academy should do away with that because it prevents situations like this from happening. I was just going to say that I don't know. Sony Pictures Classics is like such a an interesting... <laughs> Uh, company, it doesn't always feel like they they get the films for the for the sake of the Oscars. Like they've always been very like. So they also picked up Nine Days, another film that is like they're finally they finally put out a trailer for and will starting to come back out after Sundance. Um, I carry you with me was also at Sundance, um, and I think some of it is also I'm kind of glad that they're releasing it this year ultimately, largely because it really is. Maybe like at the time they probably didn't realize when they bought it, but like a film that really celebrates life and love in a way that I think will resonate with audiences. Um, and I think ultimately, I don't think the film was crafted with the intention of eventually like ending up on that list. Um, I think it's a film really meant to be a crowd pleaser. Like it's really meant to be a film that people truly engage with. And I think this is the perfect year for it. So it may lose its chance out and I'm no longer here stunning absolutely stunning um it might lose its its way to the Oscars but I do think that it'll ultimately end up in a lot of people's like um best watches like most enjoyable watches of the year because it really you do really it's it's a bittersweet ending but it's like ultimately a hopeful thing because you know these two people have each other and like in these times I think it'll really resonate with a lot of people and Carson you saw this one as well correct Yes, I did. And it destroyed me. Um, I mean, yes, it does end on this hopeful note, but this is like a deeply emotional film that like, you know, connected with me fully. It just, you know, you know, I'm a sucker for emotional gay love stories. Um, And this was one that just hit me like a brick wall. It is so, so good. And again, this is one that I just hope people can see. Um, I don't know the release schedule. I don't know if it's going to PVOD or if it's going to theatrical. I think it has an early January release date. Um, and I just hope this gets attention. I, I don't even think it would get Oscar selection, even if it became like the nomination. This isn't really the type of film they tend to go for in that category. Um, but it is so well made and it's so like, it's a unique perspective. It's unique voices. It's unique thesis. Like this is just a unique film that is so, so powerful and moving. Um, in the best of ways. Like it's not just depressing, but it's uplifting at the end. Um, And it's just, I mean, I don't know what else I can say. It's just really good. And another one that I believe you saw as well was Night of Kings. That's one that's also been a buzzy title on the festival circuit. It went to TIFF um, and then now it came to New York and Neon actually acquired it. Another one of those ballsy Neon acquisitions. And what do you think about the film? And do you think it really has a chance at 
getting the best international feature nomination because I know it was selected um, by Ivory Coast, but and it does have that neon support, but I honestly don't know because it's very ballsy. So I don't know if it's um, awards, if it's conventional enough that it could be selected for awards. No, I think this one's good for a nomination. The International Film Awards like category tends to pick some risky choices. And this one isn't like super, super risky. It's not fully out there, but you know, it is definitely unique. Um, it is about a prison. It all takes place in this prison that really values the art of storytelling. So it's about one night. It's a special tradition where one prisoner has to tell a story for the entire night. Um, I like this film a lot. Um, I don't think it's a full-on masterpiece. My biggest issue with the film is that naturally with how it is framed, you spend a lot of time listening and actually seeing the story being told. Where I found much more in what I found much more engaging was the actual like prison itself and the social dynamics and the lore within this prison. And I constantly wanted to kind of be not in the story, listening to the story, but on the outside, seeing the different players kind of work and work towards their goals and kind of play the social game in this prison in this unique setting. Um, but yeah, this one was really unique. Um, I definitely think this is going to be Neon's main awards play for the category. I'm starting to get a little bit, we you know, don't even get fully into it here, starting to get a little bit more cold on New Order getting the Mexican uh, submission. So we will see, but I think this is going to be the one that gets Neon the nomination. We'll talk about a win at a future date. Yeah, yeah. Just, just to drop that here, I think that's going to be an interesting conversation because I saw some backlash, then some support, and then now it's kind of going back to backlash for New Order. So honestly, I feel like it's going to be just a roller coaster up until the announcement. And with that film, honestly, I I can't really tell what's going to happen. Um, and you also saw The Woman Who Ran, I believe, that won the top prize at the Berlin Film Festival. Yeah, this was a weird one. I really did not expect this film to be like what it was. Ultimately, it's just about like three women just hanging out, kind of chatting, talking. Like there's not a lot that happens, which I found very strange, but in the same way, even stranger, I found it to be ultimately captivating and engaging. Um, just like talking about all subjects in a very light matter, you know, like compared to Hopper and Wells, this is a very light film. Um, but I still found it really engaging. I think this had really natural feeling dialogue. The actors are really impressive. This is a film, it's not all one unbroken take, but most of the dialogue scenes have no cuts. It's just the camera. It pans around, it zooms in and out, but it's mostly one cut for extended sequences. And these, you know, so the actors can't mess up. If you mess up 10 minutes in, you have to redo the entire thing, but they really were believable in their roles. Um, I genuinely really like this film. I don't think, again, this is one that I wouldn't say is necessarily a masterpiece, but I definitely enjoyed it quite a bit. In a similar vein, I saw Tragic Jungle, a very like, aggressive film. Uh, I Again, this is one of those films. There was quite a few films in the festival and this entire festival circuit that kind of falls in the middle where it's like, I didn't love it, but I also didn't really hate it. Um, this is just one of those films. I really don't have much to say about it. Uh, and then another one, which is... A little bit more positive, but I'm still kind of mixed on, is Undine. Uh, love story, very quirky, interesting love story um, that definitely has its moments, but also has this really deep lore that it never really, like, not only explains, but fully engage with. Like, it has a really interesting moral premise to it, but I don't think it fully works. I don't think it fully be like makes its story and its depth accessible to the audience, but I know uh, others have seen that, so I'll let them speak on it. Um, yeah, so Undine, I 
I actually really, really liked the film. I found it very mysterious and I was practically entranced throughout the whole film and I thought it was strange in all the best ways and it kind of winds down to this kind of beautiful and poetic ending that really said a lot to me. It's not that I, you know, I don't relate to the sort of love story going on here, you know, but because it's essentially a fairy tale, what is going on, but I think the way it's portrayed and the way that the director, Christian Petzold, actually told the story, I thought was really, really nicely done. And it had a lot of, I think it has a lot more to say to the soul rather than conventionally kind of explaining everything that's happening. And I thought it was very kind of sweeping and both at the same time, it was very confined. And I really, really was entranced by this. And Paula Beer is the actress and I'm a huge fan of her because she starred in the Oscar nominated Never Look Away a few years ago. Um, which is another German film and that's one of my all-time favorite films so I'm a huge fan of her and that's the primary reason I sought out this film and also the director directed Transit so I really really love this. So yeah the international feature category at New York Film Festival was obviously pretty stacked and now let's bring it home to kind of the British American films those English narrative films that are getting a lot of play and a lot of attention for possible Oscar nominations or just general traction in the American and British theatrical markets. So I just like to start here with Nomadland, which I know has been a highlight across the entire festival season. It played at Venice. It was going to play at Telluride, but obviously that was canceled and it played at New York again. And I'm curious to hear what you guys thought of that one. Cause I know pretty much, sweeped all the awards in the festivals that it's been at, at least in major festivals. And it's really being um, touted as kind of that festival darling that's going to go far in the Oscar season. Um, I absolutely, I mean, obviously really adored it. Um, It is a, it's also like an interesting mix of, of like real people. So like, there's only like, uh, in the creation of the film, they spent a lot of time traveling themselves and actually speaking with people who live this particular lifestyle. A lot of people don't realize, but it's actually based on a nonfiction book. Um, and they use that as the source material to like craft the story. And I think it's just a beautiful like vacillation on grief and like this lifestyle and also like what it means to feel connected to a community and this country and also the people that this country forgets um, and ignores and like the 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 aftermath of like the destruction of industries and what that does to people um there is i one of the most there's a beautiful shot towards the end which i'm not going to ruin anything but it's essentially um the main character revisiting their old home and you see you see a town destroyed like and it's 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 just such a beautiful i mean heartbreaking but like bittersweet look at like aspects of America that we don't normally see. Um, and I thought the film did such a beautiful shot job of like doing that in these quiet moments. Coley Zhao does fantastic films. The writer is another one that does devastating work with like a like a lovely quietness um, to it. And it's also just like beautiful. Um, it has these like stunning shots of like America, like the middle of America. And it's just, 
Uh, and Frances McDonald gives a really, I mean, always fantastic uh, powerhouse performances, um, but this is like a very controlled performance. Um, there's this one scene that I don't really want to ruin, but like the leader of the, um, the group that she connects with um, tells a story of like why he ultimately did it. And, and then the film really gets to the heart of some of what it's really doing. It's grieving. It's grieving uh, a town loss. It's grieving a partner loss. It's grieving a life loss. Um, and then embracing something new or something different. And I really appreciated like all the things that the film was playing with, all the ideas it was playing with. Um, the acting again was lovely. It's uh, Francis McDormand and David Stern. I'm saying his name wrong, um, but it is, I thought it was just an extremely moving piece. Um, and I think it's very interesting that their process right now for every other festival is to only show it at drive-ins which I think is given like what a road movie it is, such an interesting way to see the film. Um, just cause like, I feel like you start to get like, look at your car a little differently after you watch this movie and you're like, I could do this. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's a very interesting look at like, like what it means to live. I really do think that the film really gives you a greater, especially during these times, a, a greater like, feeling for like what it means to live, what, how do you define living and what things do we feel attached to? What can we live with? What can we live without? Especially during this time where a lot of people are struggling. So I did find that particular story, um, especially her like constantly looking for work and being underestimated and having a really hard time figuring that out, especially in these times. So I think it's also resonating with people that feeling of isolation and like, how do you define community? Um, I think will really resonate with audiences. Yeah, I echo pretty much everything you just said. This film, I think it was stunning. It's my favorite film of the year so far. And I think uh, compared to what a lot of people have said, this has been a like decently strong year for cinema. Um, Chloe Zhao has, make some, has made some really incredible films in the past. I think this is her masterpiece. A look at a struggling, if not, you know, failed American dream um, where to no fault of their own, just America provided them an opportunity and then fail them in pretty much every aspect. Um, it's just stunning. The cinematography is some of the best of the year, acting some of the best of the year. The meditative, just tragic uh, screenplay is one of the best of the year. Um, this is, I think like, will probably go down as comparing, you know, what I've seen so far and what I've loved to see. This probably will be my favorite film of the year. Um, I truly just cannot say enough about this film, like not to buy into the festival hype too much. You know, I think that's one of the big things a lot of people do with a lot of films. Um, but I think this is genuinely stunning. Uh, it deserves a lot at the Oscars. It, I think it's definitely going to be a nomination over win film. Uh, but, you know, I just hope again that people see this one because I think it's really incredible. So, yeah, I also saw this one as well, of course. And I just found it to be kind of as both Carson and Farida have said, just truly stunning. I feel, I don't feel as if it's going to be that good for the mainstream audiences. Like I really feel this is going to be another kind of Roma style film that just the critics and kind of like the more film attuned people enjoy. But I feel, cause I know there's been issues talking about uh, dragging or some pacing, but I really was captured from start to finish, like it was just something that just truly sucked me in. Um, this was my first Chloe Zhao film. And again, her style is once again, I know, I know this is like a recurring theme in, that I'm mentioning in this uh, episode, but just it's like, this is like a cinema verite. 
in a film, like in an actual film, because I know we talked about in documentaries, but I feel this is like one of the few examples of it in a film and just the way that they're able to both use kind of those tight close-up angles, but also those like wide sweeping landscapes and the way in which she's able to kind of just capture those and juxtapose those to create like a compelling narrative is just, it truly blew me away. And even from all this hype, I was expecting, okay, it might be just typical Oscar contender, typical Oscar bait, but I was, and I was expecting to be disappointed, honestly. Uh, I did not have high expectations for this because I know there's been in the past some festival darlings, uh, I'm doing air quotes, but festival darlings that just have not really resonated with me in past years. But this is one that really, I I liked it a lot. Um, I, I gave it an A in my review and it's just, it's something that it's gonna, I don't know if it, how many awards it's going to win, but it's definitely going to be one of those films like Roma that just racks up the nominations and probably gets something in every category. Cause it's just, it's truly stunning. Okay. Um, so I'll add in last, and the reason I wanted to go last is because I have a differing opinion, which is very unpopular. But I want to talk about what you mentioned regarding Cinema Verite, because I think it very much so fits within those bounds. And the first time I watched it, I liked No Man Land quite a lot. I didn't love it, but I liked it. I gave it, I was considering giving it like a four star or something. And so I was you know, I thought Francis was great and everything. And then I gave it a few weeks and I watched it again at the London Film Festival, actually at the cinema. And I watched it and I, I, I don't think it, I, it, it didn't really work for me, to be honest. And I think I was on the edge the first time I watched it. I think it explores its subject matter in a very good way. I think it's very realistic. But also at the same time with how great it is in terms of realism, I think it actually would have been better as a documentary. I think I would have preferred it as a documentary because I feel like the sort of nonfiction and fiction angle to it, I feel like it worked, but at the same time when I was watching it for the second time, I was really just like, oh, I wish like you could have been talking to the real people. I know the real people were in there, but I wish it was just like them exploring this sort of forgotten side of America. And I think if I'm comparing it to anything, uh, a few years ago, my favorite film of the year was Leave No Trace, which again is about sort of forgotten America, but a different angle of forgotten America, sort of. And I think that is the perfect example for me as to how to make a film kind of like this. I know it's very different. However, I did like it, but at the same time, I'm going to be honest, it's quite forgettable for me. I haven't thought about it much since I saw it again. And I feel bad when I say that because I know everyone loves it and I respect that everyone loves it. I think there's good aspects to it. But in the end of the day, it's not one of my favorite films I've seen this year. And although I think Chloe Zhao does especially a good job writing realism into this. And I think Frances McDormand is great as usual. She's one of the best actors out there. Not, I'm not denying that she's not fantastic in this because she really, really plays it extremely well. But I think when it comes to this, I think the authenticity is there and it's captured on the screen. But I think it would have worked better as a documentary for me. So yeah, that's my differing opinion. 
And so, yeah, it's good to hear that perspective because I feel, as you were saying, the majority of people just were really like fell in love with it. But I do have to ask you, so where do you think Leave No Trace succeeded where this failed? Like, what would you say are like the major differences between what made you really love one and kind of be a little bit um, reserved on the other? Maybe, I think, obviously I'm not American, as you can probably hear. So maybe there is, and I know Leave No Trace is American, but I don't know, maybe it's because at the time when I was watching Leave No Trace, I was a pretty similar age to Thomas and Mackenzie's character. And I, I really got into it and it, you know, made me cry. And I think filmmakerly wise, I think a lot of how I judge a film is in terms of, you know, its cinematography, the way it's directed, the writing, so on. Sort of, I feel like Deborah Granick's work in Leave No Trace is sort of perfect on all levels for me. And I had, I'm not the first time I had some issues with cinematography with Nomadland, but then the second time I felt like, you know, he's, I think there were some strange choices. The whole film is basically, you know, handheld. And I know it's, you know, a verite style of filmmaking, but at the end of the day, I don't think it worked as well. I think, you know, great, you know, sunset shots, you know, uh, magic hour and stuff. But there was something about the filmmaking that just didn't resonate to me the way that, uh, you know, Leave No Trace did in the past. So I know they're very different, but there is just something about Leave No Trace that really, really got into me. And, you know, it's one of my favorite films of the decade. So another one that I know people were more mixed about, kind of similar to what Ben thought about Nomadland, but just everyone was kind of in tune with this one. Um, and obviously I know there were a couple of outliers, but just in general, French Exit. So I saw this one and I went in completely blind, just having seen that first image. And this was another one where I was expecting a well-made Oscar drama. And just what it turned out to be was something that I was not expecting at all. And like, it just turned out to be some surreal comedy that really reminded me of like one of those films that your grandma would put on on the Hallmark Channel on Thanksgiving Eve. And you just go over there and you you see your grandma watching it and you're like, grandma, why are you watching that? And she's like, oh, I like it. And it's bland, uh, it's cute, it's enjoyable, but it's like, like, what was the point of it? I really don't see what the point of it was. This was, my first film of, I believe his name is pronounced Azel Jacobs. And I like, he seemed pretty highly praised, but I look back at his, um, his resume and it, I, nothing really stood out to me. So I was surprised as how it was getting so much anticipation from that standpoint. I know Michelle Pfeiffer, I will say that Michelle Pfeiffer um, had a great performance. Lucas Hedges was a little bit reserved, but for what he was trying to do, it was good. But honestly, that film just didn't resonate with me. I gave it a, a slightly positive C plus, but it's not one that I can see myself watching anytime soon. And it's frankly, it's very forgettable. Now, this might be because um, I was coming in with kind of different expectations. And I know some people had actually read the novel before. I haven't. So that may have also influenced my perspective. But for what I was expecting, it was just, it was really a complete letdown. And Frankly, I think um, in my festival ranking, that was the film all the way at the bottom of the entire festival season. Now, I like I said, I did give it a slightly positive review and I was lucky to not see an outright bad film in the festival season, but still 
it's one that left me really cold. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, I saw some mixed reactions for French Exit. However, I'm actually like you. I didn't know anything going into this film. I just saw the first image, knew it was Michelle Pfeiffer. I knew that Lucas Hedges was in it. And so I was looking forward to the film. I got the link and I watched it and I was delighted. I was really happy after watching this film. I, it really, <laughs> I know I'm here with all the contrasting opinions, but it really worked for me. And I thought it was a really strange film. It was greatly shot, has this sort of avant-garde style that is more like Wes Anderson, but at the same time, it's not as refined as Wes Anderson. But I think the deadpan nature of it really, really cool to me. And the screenwriter and novelist actually wrote The Sisters Brothers, which is completely different. And I think there is, you know, it shows a lot of talent because I think The Sisters Brothers was such great sort of Western. And then this is a completely opposite kind of avant-garde set in Paris, kind of quirky comedy. And I think he did a really great job. I thought the scripting, the screenplay was really, really great. And I think Michelle Pfeiffer and the whole extensive cast really landed all of those moments for me. And I was laughing nonstop. I thought it was a kind of wild, absurdist, sort of theatrical kind of ride that I I really enjoyed. I really liked it. Yeah, don't worry, Ben. I love this film. I like, okay. this is a <laughs> film I genuinely loved. Um, at first I was like, oh, it's really good. And then the more I thought about it, I, I love this film. It's one of those movies that I sat down to write my review not expecting much. And then I ended up producing like 1300 words on it. It's such a strange film. It's really like, I've never seen it. Well, I've probably seen films that do this more, but like it's a film that consistently contradicts itself. It absolutely refuses for the majority of the runtime to have its major conversation. It's focusing on the dysfunction of a family, um, and it just, every time it seems like it's going to go in the route of having like its big emotional conversation, a character steers away, which is really like close to reality. I saw a lot of reality in that side of the film. So you think, oh, naturally this is going to be, this is going to be a more grounded project, but then you have ghosts speaking and you have a talking cat. That's like the spirit of like a dead dad. And it just gets wild. And it just, at every point you seem to know what it's going to do. And then it just completely rejects like the natural natural like thought process but in a way that completely works I think every actor in this film just completely worked for me I found the screenplay to be genuinely like not just shocking in the sense of like wow they're really doing something unique here um, but also just emotionally like this really hit me hard um, this is a film I went in expecting to hate I knew nothing about it um, I was just like, oh, it doesn't, you know, I think the early buzz it, it just wasn't necessarily a film I was super hyped for. Um, and I walked away just like, yep, this is the film I love. Everyone else seems to hate, but I, I was fully here for it. So for those of you guys who are just listening to the recording, uh, just letting you guys know, I was visibly wincing when Carson and Ben were speaking because I really don't see like, like I see why you guys like it, but I don't know. I just I find it a little bit perplexing how it's still in the awards conversation. Cause I because I did see like like I said mixed reviews, but there were quite a few people still saying Michelle Pfeiffer, best actress, uh, Lucas Hedges, supporting actress, and even some adapted screenplay potential, which I just did not get at all. So I I want to hear your guys' thoughts 
on the awards potential of this film? I thought um, when I heard, you know, this is going to be like a contender for the Oscars and everything, then I watched the film and I was like, hmm, I love this film, but it seems a bit too maybe quirky for the taste of the Academy yeah. voters, in my opinion, because I've seen what they've voted in in the past. And I mean, for the last few years, they've done a good job nominating a lot of great films barring the Bohemian Rhapsody year. However, I think French Exit does have a chance with Michelle Pfeiffer, and I think she should be nominated. I think she is. She gives one of the best performances of the year, frankly, and I don't see it being nominated for much else apart from her, I think. I agree. I think this is Michelle Pfeiffer bust. If this was an international film, I would say like this is the perfect type of quirky for that category. Um, unfortunately, it's not. The one X factor, though, with this film is the late release date. This is coming out mid-February, right before the award. They start voting right before the awards. Um, you know, this is one of those weird years that you look at as December release date, and normally that seems like, oh, it's going to be late in the conversation. It's not this year. There's still multiple months to go. So if this film, if other films have its shine in the conversation, you know, Mank is coming out in December. I think that's the new main one. We still have a couple more to go, like Judas and the Black Messiah. We don't know when Minari is coming out. Um, but of all these films from the, like the fall season and the winter season up to December have their moment in the conversation leave the conversation this comes out and gets people buzzing as like one of the last late breaking oscar contenders maybe it slides into screenplay but ultimately i think it is going to be michelle pfeiffer or bust i will say though i don't think i've heard anyone say like michelle pfeiffer is bad in the film i think everyone even those mixed on the film are like well she's you know pretty good she's giving it her all so that's at least one constant so i think that's what this movie hopes for and like that's going to be the ride or die for this film but also, like, if it gets adapted screenplay, I wouldn't be, you know, completely shocked. Honestly, the more and more I think about it, I feel like this is a film that uh, the Academy Awards themselves will not pick up. But I feel considering the Golden Globes, kind of older awards based, more star driven in terms of trying to, you know, get the stars. They're notorious for knowing for just nominating all the star power um, so that they can attend their gala. Um, I feel like this film could maybe get a Best Comedy nomination and a Best Comedic Actress nomination in the Golden Globes. And I feel that that may be where it ends up going. But like I said before, maybe if it was a, a weak year for Best Actress, but seeing kind of Vanessa Kirby, Frances McDormand, um, Viola Davis, and a few more, like I, I'd... I can't personally see how this will go to the Academy Awards. But as you said, the late release date might change things up. So another film that also got some mixed to positive reactions that seem as if its award chances have kind of died out, but it still has some life left in the comedy, the Golden Globe comedy sections, is On the Rocks, which we have actually discussed in full length in our October 23rd episode. So check that one out if you guys want to hear our full-length On The Rocks discussion. Because I know me and Carson here were the only ones who got the chance to see it. And we have both discussed that in length with some other special guests on our previous episode. But kind of just to bring everything full circle. And frankly, I'd say this is the buzziest projects to come out of the festival. And it does seem like it's going to get a lot of traction as they get released, especially considering its relevant themes. 
where the Small Axe Trilogy, which is actually a part of a five-part miniseries from Steve McQueen coming out on Amazon Prime uh, in November and December. But I just want to start with Lover's Rock, which I know was the first film to come out. I know we have some differing opinions on that. So I just want to hear what you guys thought about that one. I loved it. I'm also like, I know that there's some people in here who didn't love it. I know it's not going to be for everyone, but I will say this and I've seen the other small acts films and I've seen a lot of Stephen McQueen. It's probably my favorite of his films. Um, I thought that it, um, sometimes with his films, I feel like sometimes the endings don't stick the, the rest of the film. And this is a film in which I felt like the ending really did like bring the story whole because it ends on like kind of, um, it ends with her. I mean, there's, there's really nothing to spoil because it's not a film that requires spoiling. Uh, like it ends with her just like waking up in bed and then going to church. And it's this very nice full story of a night. Um, and it is, it felt like you were there. Like I remember watching the movie and being like, God, I want to go to a bashment. Like it was really, it was like this really fun film that like has these like really lovely moments. Like there's the moment in the bedroom between the two girls. And then there's like these, there's the moment where like, and, and it's not like this is, because a lot of these films, uh, the rest of the films within are relatively politically charged. And this one's probably the one with the least amount of it. So there are like hints of like distress with, within the film and of sadness and of harm. And I think the film does a really good job of like blending those while also maintaining uh, like this kind of like pleasant vibe to it all. Like there's all these, like there's these boys who are clearly watching them set up the house. The girl, when she walks out and has to be saved by the bouncer, this is his relationship with the boss. So like, there's all these like undercurrents of like what is actually going wrong. There's also like the ultimate like necessity of it. The reason why they had to have a house party is because they weren't allowed in clubs. Like, so like, there's a lot of like things being discussed about the time, but in this way that is like, I found extremely accessible. Like, uh, and I, I particularly enjoyed it because it really felt like something like a space that I've been to. Um, so, and like the music, the music's stunning. I really love the section of the film, um, Silly Games in which the women start singing acapella. There's a, a equivalent scene where the men kind of just like, which actually happens at parties where they just kind of like lose their shit a bit. But like, it was like, you could see the rage and the anger that they are forced to like have to hold in for the vast majority of their lives come out on the dance floor and allow for them to have it. And you see it specifically through the cousin character who like in him, the other men who are at the booth, like see that pain. And they're just like, here's an opportunity to like let that out in a world that won't let you let it out. And I thought the film does like just, I, I thought it just did a really lovely job of kind of capturing life um, in over the course of a night for these people and the different things that they do have to deal with, the harm that they have to avoid and gave them a safe space to like kind of do those things. But even in that space, not everything's safe because there's the man who's also trying to do harm to one of the women. Um, so like, it, it was like such a, I don't know. I really loved it. I love the nuance of it. I know it's not going to be everyone's favorite, but I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I want to add on this because I completely agree with you. And Lovers Rock was really a film that was one of my favorites of all the festivals. I saw it again last week. Um, they played it at the London Film Festival, and I am I just loved it so much, especially the second time. And I loved it the first time, then especially the second time, it just works so well. 
And I love that there is no true sort of big overarching narrative. There's no huge conflict. It's just a really kind of tender, kind of simple narrative. But at the same time, it's got so much to it. It's tender, it's beautiful, very soulful. And it's musically, it's completely rapturous and engaging. And like you said, Janet Kay's Silly Games. And again, I, I am British and I'm from, you know, I'm from near there in London. And my dad actually went to the same university at the same time. He was in the same year as Steve McQueen. And so I, I, I kind of have a lot of connections to this. So even though I'm not black, I related to it in some way. And I think the portrayal of this sort of very unknown part of British culture was really, really done well. And I think Queen knocked out the park. So yeah, like I definitely get your guys' viewpoints. And personally for me, I am still a little bit conflicted on the film because just full disclosure, I'm coming at this as an American, like as a Latino American. Um, Like I said, I've been in America my whole life. Um, So again, I don't have kind of that British perspective on this or um, black perspective either. But just from what I saw from a narrative standpoint, I found narratively, as you said, this was pretty weak. Um, I was expecting, coming off of uh, 12 Years a Slave and Widows, I was really expecting another kind of gripping, just like toward the force from Steve McQueen, which we actually will talk about in a second, but we got in some of his later works in Small Acts. But for this one, it kind of just took me by surprise that it was kind of a more passive, just um, calm, just party atmosphere without really like a, a plot. And I, I've heard it compared to Days and Confused in terms that it's really just pl- plotless. And you're kind of just like there in a first person perspective, just in the lives of the characters. I found the characters to be kind of weak as well. But I think that was because they wanted to give more of the community's perspective rather than any specific character. Um, however, that being said, I did appreciate the kind of the subtextual nature of it. I know th- with the symbolism, like they had the cross, like if you can see at the beginning, the guy's dragging the cross. Um, sorry, I think my audio caught up, but if you see at the beginning, there's a guy dragging the cross. Um, then at the end, like you, you can see the cross again. Like I like the Christian symbolism where like at the beginning and at the end, she's kind of like going through like her, um, her heritage, but also her Christian nature. So I found that conflict. It was subtle, but I, I like that conflict as well. And just the fact that, again, like you're saying that it's not at the forefront, like McQueen's other films, but they the tensions and the racial tensions and kind of like the, the heads colliding are there, they're present, they're there. There's little moments here and there that definitely point to those tensions existing. And I like that as well. But as you said, the party atmosphere, when I originally saw it, I was a little bit like, this is taking a really long time. There were parts where they just, they sung a full song and I was just kind of like, this is dragging for far too long. But removing myself from it um, and just kind of thinking about it a few days later, I really enjoyed uh, McQueen's direction and just seeing how he was able to portray um, like a positive moment in that community. Because I feel like a lot of like his films in the past and just general films about kind of these communities tend to look at kind of like the, the hardships these communities went through. And this was one of those few films where you could kind of see like the joys and the happiness that this community has at certain moments. 
So again, I, I'm a little bit conflicted. I did like the film, don't get me wrong, but I just personally, I found this one to be the weakest of the three small acts films offered at New York Film Festival, but I completely see everyone else's point of view because I know there were quite a few people such as, such as Farida who just really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I totally get that. I think Lovers Rock is also like the sort of film that like either will resonate or not resonate. It kind of like is a risk in that kind of way. Like a lot of the people, a lot of the complaints, like the concerns about the film are similar, which is that certain things went on too long or they couldn't get into it. And I think part of the reason that I like fully resonated is because I like, that is a space I've been in. I'm like, uh, I'm from New York. I've been to a lot of like Caribbean parties, house parties, I'm Nigerian American. Um, and like, literally from the minute they were standing online to pay to get in and the bouncer goes, you guys can walk in. I was just like, I'm there. I've been there before. And like every step of the way, it just felt like I was, if, if I could see the days and confused, but I feel like it was more like we were there at the party with them. Like, that's what I think the feeling was meant to be. It wasn't simply like, Ooh, look at these characters as they live their lives. It was come be at this party with us. And all these other things are happening at this party. And I felt like I went on that journey through the film. And I think it's, you don't want to be at the party. It's not going to be the movie for you. I think that's also part of it as well. Um, Cause it, it really was, I think that's what it, it felt like an invitation to the party. I felt like that's what the film was for me. So if you didn't want to go to the party, it was not going to really resonate to see it as like a film. And I think that's the reason why I really enjoyed it. But I also totally understand that it's not going to be for everyone. It's the sort of film that like very much feels like either going to really like it or you're just like going to be like, man, not for me. And I think that was the risk he kind of took more so than with some of the other small acts films, which were very much like stories about specific instances. This was very much a, do you want to go on this particular journey? If not, no big, which is the reason why I kind of like it. Cause it's, um, it felt like the most uh, specifically for us by us. Like it was kind of like, you can come into this story if you want to, but I'm not making it for anyone else. Like I'm making it for the people who want to be in the room. And I thought that was an interesting thing because Steve McQueen's films tend to not necessarily have that sort of energy necessarily. Um, they tend to be more like, I'm telling this story in a way that people can engage with it. Different people from different points of view can kind of engage with it. And this kind of felt very much like a, just come in, this is the story I'm telling. You're not here for it, that's cool. I didn't really make it for you. And I thought that was like an interesting, so like it, it felt like an extreme departure in terms of style also from Steve McQueen, which is also the reason why I really, I love Steve McQueen movies, but I thought it was like the riskiest of the small acts films. I was sorry, I was gonna say you're exactly right. And there was an interview that Steve did um, at the London Film Festival. They played it before they played the film. And you can tell, like you said, it's like, do you want to come to the party or not? You know, do you like the music? Do you like the dancing? Do you like the style? And Steve talked about this and it's, you can tell he has so much passion, number one for the music, but also the story. And yeah, there's not a huge overarching main sort of moment of conflict or something, you know, to propel the narrative. It's this moment in time. And he talks about it as in, well, in that interview, he talked about it as in like, it's basically based on, his aunt and what she used to do, you know, in London, in this neighborhood, in Notting Hill. And she, and literally like her, I think her brother would let her out the window. She would jump out the window. She would go to these blues parties. And so you can tell the passion is there for Steve. And I think that really shines through. And I think it, it just really, really um, will call to you if you're interested 
in the music and you know the sort of essence of the West Indian Caribbean sort of party atmosphere of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I feel like this is also partially one of the reasons that I was a little bit mixed on it was because I went in expecting a traditional McQueen film because I had not seen any of the trailers. I actually tried to not read the the plot description for any of these. Uh, to just this was something I wanted to go in blind with, and I feel like maybe if I had known beforehand that this was a much more kind of just atmospheric, just about the party, then I would have enjoyed it much more. So I think I'm going to give it a rewatch uh, before it comes out to Amazon Prime, um, and I feel like this might be one of those few films that I actually reappraise and I enjoy a lot more on second viewing. However, one that I think got even more unanimous praise uh, seems to be Mangrove, which was the second installment of this small act series um, that premiered at New York Film Festival. I believe it's actually going to be the first episode of the series. So I don't know why they kind of shifted that around. But I found this one to be just much more in line with traditional McQueen and honestly, probably his best work yet. So I do want to hear what you guys thought about that one as well. I agree. This is very much more traditional um, McQueen. I thought it was lovely powerhouse performances, really fantastic storytelling, looking at a period of time that most people don't really, doesn't often get shown in film. Um, and I, I, I thought it was, uh, especially I thought it, it was kind of a film I was waiting for from him after Widows, because I thought Widows did a phenomenal job, but about a country he's not from. So I thought this was this would be his opportunity to talk a little bit more about those relations in the in his home country. Um, and I, I mean, he hit it out of the park. He's like he's a stunning filmmaker. He's very good at like uh, tell like using smaller instances to make larger conversations um, and like building upon it. So I thought Mangrove was. It's like, it's one of those things where it's like an easy yes. Like he's the, the perfect person to have these sort of conversations. Um, and again, acting's great. Um, and I thought it was interesting also that Lover's Rock did premiere first at New York Film Festival. And I don't know if it's because the order wasn't set because Mangrove did premiere first at London. So I wonder if the order was just not set initially or if there was like a specific reason why it went in that order at um I did, and I also think it's interesting that that's the first one, considering, like, the order. Like, so of the three that I saw, I thought it was. I'm, I'm really interested to see how he wants them seen. That's the thing that I'm most, like, can like want to see. Like, what is the, what is the order of the narrative? Like, Small Axe is like interesting in that it is kind of also like a mini series. So like, they are, I imagine, meant to be seen in connection with one another. So like, the flow of it. Um, I'd be interesting to see, but like, I would love to hear other people's things with Mangrove. I, I mean, I was, just, it felt like an easy yes for me. Like I watched a movie, acting's amazing, directing's amazing, script's amazing, story's amazing. Like it's just, as you said, unanimous praise. It's just really, it's just really well done. Well, I think I agree with you once again. I really, really love Mangrove and you're right. Talking about Widows, obviously that's America. And now he's doing the series, which is based on a series of different, you know, incidences, not really Lover's Rock, but, you know, it sort of is an incident, but like a really lovely incident about lovers and rockers in London. And I thought this was just fantastic. I really, really loved it. And you're right, it's more normal, normally Steve McQueen. It's more about a specific incident. And I think it's really kind of unprecedented in the way that it's filmed 
and the entire spirit behind this, it really gets the emotions out of you. And I think it's this wonderfully impassioned and kind of blazing film. You're, you're so with the characters, you are, you know, basically ride or die with them, right? And so I think this will undoubtedly go down in the books as, you know, one of the best films this year. It's definitely one of my favorite films. And I think, you know, just the way it depicted, you know, the complete barbaritry of the police in London and, you know, all that the mangrove went through and the people surrounding the mangrove. And I thought, you know, the way Steve actually goes around doing this film, I think is just absolutely incredible. And I think this is the perfect film for right now, especially considering what's happened recently. And again, it happens in Britain as well. And I think it's really good that he gives a British perspective of some of these kind of terrible events. Yeah, I feel like one of the reasons that this resonated with me a lot more is because once again, this is something I expected from McQueen. It was gripping. It felt urgent. And I think it felt, especially regarding current events, it felt much more universal than Lover's Rock. And I really enjoyed how it played with like the aesthetic and specifically the structure because not to spoil much, I don't think, I wouldn't say this is a spoiler, but kind of the first half of the movie um, deals with kind of just like everything building up and then kind of just like all the protests and stuff. And the second half is more of the trial. And like, not to compare to to Netflix's recent release, The Trial of Chicago 7, but I felt that this that was like a much more um, sanitized perspective, a much more kind of like, um, well, it was trying to be unproblematic. And then in that case, it became more problematic because it did erase quite a couple of things and made it more streamlined. But I found that this one was a much more um, like a real, a grounded tale, something like you could actually see happening. And there was no like preaching to the choir or anything like that. Like it was very grounded and real. And I also really, because he's always been a great director, right? Um, but I found, again, he he tends to be a little bit more subtle, more about like the themes, all that stuff. But these protest sequences with like kind of like the the simple, I think it was kind of like a woodblock or something, a simple score just like churning in the background, but just the way those protest scenes were directed, um, much, again, much better than anything in Trial of Chicago 7. Um, those scenes I think were his best work of the year. I mean, like I said, I haven't seen, we haven't seen any of those two last small acts films, but so far in small acts, those were my favorite parts about it. And I felt the conversations it had in terms of the kind of injustice and the fact that even the trial, like it's it's history, but like the trial ended kind of positively, but in the aftermath, he does put a little bit, like once the film ends, he does explain a little bit more of what happens next. And you see that even despite the small victory that was a trial, uh, ultimately things kind of went back to normal. And it's it's just uh, kind of like the the racial discrimination going on in the police force. So yeah, again, once again, um, this is, in my opinion, McQueen's strongest installment. I believe it also has the highest rating out of all three on Letterboxd as well. And I don't know, this was just kind of like what I was expecting from McQueen and more. And I, I feel like this is just him at his peak. And then the final McQueen film that premiered as part of Small Acts in New York Film Festival, which actually does delve much deeper into the kind of the discrimination going on in the police force. And I believe it's quite a few years later after Mangrove, uh, when it takes place, is Red, White, and Blue. And this one stars um, John Boyega, who who uh, starred in Star Wars. And obviously there were some problems there. And recently, especially 
in light of current events, he's become one of the prime um, black voices in terms of kind of like speaking up for equality and kind of just being honest and transparent about the treatment he's gone through in past blockbuster films. And so I found that he was a great guy for the role because again, this is someone who's kind of going through the same thing, kind of in an environment where it may seem like everything is great for most people, but for him specifically, there are just so many injustices and things happening that should not happen to him just because of his skin color. And so I just, I know that this one was received a little more tepidly. I liked it quite a lot. I liked it more than uh, Lover's Rock, but I want to hear again what you guys thought about this installment. Yeah, so Red, White, and Blue. Again, I really, really was just entranced by all three of these small axe films. I thought they were all amazing and they're all some of the best films I've seen this year. And Red, White and Blue, I think, sees a never better John Boyega, honestly. I think this is his best performance I've seen. He's amazing in all of his other projects. I'm a big fan. But this really, I feel like it's just something completely new for him. And I think his work with McQueen here kind of absorbs themselves into this kind of very, very powerful and provoking world that tackles a different aspect of of police you know sort of police goings on in England because this is from within the inside you feel the struggle that his character goes through you know he's trying to make these changes but from the inside it's inherently it's just inherently really really shitty yeah so inherently um the british police system like the american police system is corrupt from the inside and this film critiques british policing but not limited to the bigotry and systemic racism within and it sort of shows this other angle and i thought it was really really good at the way it portrays this and i think boyega sort of emanates you know the frustration we all feel and so I think Red, White and Blue definitely is one to remember. And, you know, just there was a few scenes. Yes, it's very, very harsh and it's very provoking. But at the same time, there's a few scenes that just are a joy to watch, like Boyega dancing, like as Leroy Logan. He's just dancing. He's having a great time. And I think there is a true humanity to all of the scenes in this film. And so, yeah, I think this was right up there i don't know where i'm going to rank all the small axe films but i would say this and mangrove are probably my favorites so yeah same with ben i found it to be very very well made again like i said maybe not quite as impactful as mangrove but still i preferred it to lovers rock um i found kind of just uh john boyega's character arc was very well made again um while mangrove was more of an ensemble piece you could tell this was more of a character driven um, drama. And so, like I said, these three offerings of small acts were all wildly different. Um, like I said, some worked better for others, but in my opinion, uh, this kind of character study worked very well for me. Again, this is not from a perspective that I can fully resonate with, but um, from an outside perspective, as I'm saying, um, it was one that really resonated with me um, structurally. Um, it was directed very well as well. Uh, the screenplay I loved as well. Um, maybe not quite to the heights of Mangrove again, but this was one that maybe, well, we'll talk about this in a second, but honestly, if this was a standalone film, I, I could see some potential for it as well in terms of 
awards traction? My opinion mostly falls in line with everyone else. Um, but I think for me, the film, uh, the film's highlights are being able to see the range on John Boyega. Um, I thought in terms of the story, um, I thought it's like very well done. The story's like, and I'm really, I'm really enjoying the insights. Um, the small acts in general are insights to invisible people who um, in, in terms of media were not seen in British media at all for the longest time. Um, and so therefore they were never saw themselves during that period of time. So essentially a tribute to stories that were kind of ignored for a period of time. Um, but I felt like, as you said, it was a character study and John Boyega is fantastic in it. But I do find that the film felt way more, it's weird cause like Lover's Rock is really during the course of like one night. Um, this film felt like just about the thing, like just about this like, which which I found interesting because like even when he has stories just about one person, like his interactions with supporting characters in other films tend to be more like Twelve Years a Slave. You have um, you walk away from that movie. Yes, you watch it for the main character, but the supporting character played by Lupita Nyong'o is the one that you really really like sit with for a good portion of the film. Um, you watch Shame and the characters that he interacts with. You still want to learn more about. I think in this film, the only character that I was particularly invested in was John Boyega, which I think was the intention of the film. But like, um, I thought that was an interesting, especially since the two other films, Mangrove is very much like the story of the community and the people within it. And Lover's Rock is really about the community. I thought it was interesting that this one was just like, it felt focused in a way that I thought um, his other films don't necessarily focus, even the ones with a main character. I mean, honestly, I feel like there was also the presence of that Pakistani police officer who was kind of going through similar things as John Boyega. But of course, he was a little bit more uh, less resistant to it, like just obviously like disappointed. But he didn't he wasn't really as passionate about that side of it as John Boyega was. Um, so I was like I would put up that character as a counter argument. But one thing that I do agree with is, as you were saying, like Lover's Rock is a lot shorter. And this one does feel as if it's a little bit less because it goes in depth with the character but I feel like um especially because as you can tell like in in both uh Mangrove and this one he loves like a little like epilogue just like a, some text across the screen kind of giving some context at the end of what happens next and I felt that this film maybe could have benefited from an additional 30 minutes kind of exploring what happens next because again not to spoil anything but it ends in a place where like you can, it ends one relationship but it still leaves many others open and maybe this film would have benefited um, from being a little bit more all-encompassing and kind of exploring John Boyega's full life rather than just kind of stopping at a crucial point and what could maybe even be considered the midpoint of many other films. I agree. I think that's really what it was. It felt like, and I spoke about endings at one point when I was talking about Lover Talk, but it did feel like um, the epilogue was the ending, but I felt like I didn't feel like the story truly ended for me. And I think that might've been really like what I still love it I love everything in small acts and really do appreciate like the act of telling these stories but I do think that that's my thing so I do wonder what the final two films are I know all five of them are unrelated but I do want to see like what the that's the reason I'm interested in the arc of the story um because I do want to know if it's the unfinished nature of the film or like the way it ends plays into what comes after um because there, he, he covers essentially 20 years in these small acts films. So like seeing what's next and Mangrove kind of like 
bleeds into some of these other storylines as well. So like, I think it would be really interesting to see what if he takes more real life examples or if it's more atmospheric stuff for what comes next. And, um, but yeah, still love it. I thought I'm really excited that John Boyega, there's also like a really funny, like throwaway line. It's not going to ruin anything where he gets asked, Hey, are you a Jedi? So like, I'm really excited that John Boyega gets to have like uh, the opportunity to show his range in a role that he feels does him justice. So I'm really excited for John Boyega to like get the praise that he rightfully deserves for the film. Um, and just to see what's coming, what's coming next from the final two films. Yeah, I think overall, these films, the three that we've been able to see so far, I think they all like tie together in a very nice way. Yeah, you know, Lover's Rock is pretty different from Mangrove and Red, White and Blue. But at the same time, there's, you know, some overall themes. And I guess that's how you do an anthology. You have the themes linking rather than the stories linking. And I've really, really liked every single one. I think they're amazing. I think Stephen Queen's done a great job. And I have to mention, I think the cinematography on all three films is really, really magical. Shooting on different film stocks, 35, changing aspect ratios. I think there is a lot of stylistic elements to these films that I really liked, especially in the colours and the way the sort of film grain makes it feel like you're actually in the moment, you know, you're not like just looking back at a moment, but it's like this film could have been made back then if they were actually portraying these stories back then. Yeah, and just to kind of function as a nice segue into small acts as a whole and kind of looking at what it will be next, because I do know that um, Farida mentioned the other two films. I believe one is about Alex Weedle and another one is about um, kind of this like uh, middle schooler kind of going through the education system. So I feel like, again, these are different kind of going to be different styles of stories. Um, and I feel like this is going to be a very interesting project overall. I've heard it compared to Decalogue in terms of kind of like the format it's taking. Cause again, these are all separate films from a renowned director, but again, they thematically function as a mini series. Um, also another thing that I want to ask you guys, and well, honestly, most people I've seen many awards pundits as well in the dark about this. Cause I'm curious about how Amazon is going to campaign this. Cause as I said, I think if these were separate films completely, Mangrove would be a sure best picture bet. Um, I'd say John Boyega could easily get into the best actor slot um, as well as maybe uh, Letitia Wright. But this is a mini series. And what I'm curious about is whether they're going to go the limited series route or whether they're going to try to nominate five TV movies, which I believe is the same category, limited or TV movie. But it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to do that. Because again, these limited series um, things, it's only like one act, like, one actor is only in one film and it's not like you can nominate one actor as a limited series actor because they are only again in one film but by nominating them as tv movies you pretty much ensure that at least two or three will get shunned out of the emmys race yeah it's interesting and i really don't know what's gonna happen because originally it was set to be um like a for, for the bbc it was set to just premiere on BBC One in England. And then obviously they got the deal with Amazon to show it in America. And so considering it was originally intended to be a mini series for TV, I don't know how the Oscars rule. Well, I've looked at how the Oscar rules have changed 
but I'm a bit uncertain as to if small acts can actually get into the race. So for now, whilst I'm not 100% sure, I would say if they are eligible, like 100%, there's going to be some sort of nominations for them. But if it does go down the sort of TV route with the Emmys or uh, whatever TV awards there are that it can participate in, I think it's going to do very, very well at those because, I mean, it's exceptional if you compare it to a lot of TV films uh, that are currently being released. My understanding as far as the Oscars is that since there was no intended theatrical release for these films ever, even though they're now including streaming, they're only including those that had a planned theatrical release. So it'd be similar to like Bad Education, for example, this year, where they're not in the Oscar conversation. I'm really interested to see what films they uh, decide to actually submit to the Emmys, considering they can submit certain ones to like different categories. Um, I'm interested to see if they try to split them up and try to get a little bit of love for like different categories for each film or if they just consolidate all into one. I know that's like my biggest question right now with what they decided to do for the awards. I'm pretty sure they're going to definitely do it as episodic, um, largely because it's how it was crafted and the intentionality of it. Um, I think it's no different from like anything that's anthology made, though. I think it's just going to be um, episodic content similar to like I mean, not like similar, but like the way that you would look at Twilight Zones, which are mini movies for each individual episodes with completely different actors. And I think that's just how they're going to sell it as a mini series. I think it'll probably be up against all the HBO fare. Like it'll be one of those sort of like pieces of content. I think that's how it's going to go. Um, but we'll see. Like I don't, I can't imagine they'll submit them as mini films are largely because I think it'll work. Um, it won't work for them in like campaigning wise. Cause I do think that like part of the, the intentionality of it is to be seen as a group. Um, and I think they are stronger as a group. So I think it'll be really interesting to like see them one after another. Cause the one thing about watching this for press screenings is saw them in pieces cause they weren't released at the same time. Um, I think, and we watch a miniseries, it's like, it's not always binge watch, but the act of putting it on Amazon allows for it, unless they're gonna release a weekly for you to continuously watch them kind of as a group. So I think the impact might be stronger. Like Lover's Rock might end up being the palate cleanser that you need, and it's a stronger film as a result. Um, Cause it's, um, and then you might like it. Like I like it separately as its own thing, but the reason I keep talking about flow is I think Lover's Rock was intended as part of a flow for the films. So. It like in probably, and it starts with Mangrove, which is pretty standard Stephen McQueen. So like, it'll be interesting to go in that direction, but I think mini series is probably what they're gonna do for. Limited series is probably like Big Little Lies. I think they're gonna go for limited series. Yeah, I'd actually say that in terms of, as you were saying, the flow and the order of it, I've gotten quite a few press releases from Amazon saying, oh, we've updated the order. Never mind, it's gonna actually be this order. And you can tell that they've shifted the order quite a lot. And I actually believe, um. Two of the films, I think Mangrove and Red, White, and Blue, were submitted to New York as works in progress, and they weren't completed until recently before the festival, because I think, as you guys saw, um, the press screening dates for um, all three, actually, were not announced through the festival, and they were actually announced through the Amazon uh, press release company. So... I feel like that is something that's going to might define things like, um, for instance, I think Lover's Rock might, I think right now it's episode two. Um, and I do feel, I think Amazon is doing a weekly release from what I understand. Again, I feel like, as you were saying, if they try to do each of them as individual 
TV films in the TV film or limited series. Or wait, I think they have a TV film. How it works is that they have um, a limited series category and a TV film section. But then for all the acting and directing categories, I believe it's um, TV and limited, or sorry, movie and limited series together. So I feel like honestly, if they submit it as a limited series, um, they are a pretty clear victor. The only challenger I'd say would probably be Barry Jenkins's upcoming Underground Railroad series, which it looks great, but I don't know if it's going to release in time for the Emmys. But I feel like, again, they should be able to split up the acting nominations pretty easily as well. I could definitely see it, but this year's Chernobyl, like being the one that kind of like sweeps everything. Um, and I think because of that, that it makes the most sense for them to do it because it's an easy sweep. Like not that you should like put things in only for places that you think you're going to win. But like, uh, I think limited series is probably the smartest way forward, just given the competition that exists this year and just how strong it works in that particular way. Um, I think that would more than likely serve Amazon best with this particular, like, like, content and then so do you guys want to um move kind of on to just your general like the general experiences we had at the festival because again this was the first ever virtual edition of the new york film festival i believe it was maybe the the third or fourth ever major uh virtual film festival because i know we had toronto we had fantasia we had a couple of others but again this was the first major virtual american festival so i i just want to hear you guys because i know we all had actually different experiences we all we're able to cover it in different ways. Like I know I, I had the standard press accreditation. I think Ben had as well. Um, Farida actually was accredited through the industry because she's a programmer as well, I believe. And Carson actually was able to get individual films to create um, a full New York Film Festival coverage. So I just want to hear about a little bit about what you guys thought about the virtual experience of this festival compared to previous years. As Diego mentioned, I am also a programmer. So I've been to... Uh, and I've been to New York Film Festival, not necessarily as a programmer before. Um, I'm from New York. Um, so it's probably one of the first larger festivals that I've been to. Um, I've attended it multiple times. Um, it was really interesting to see it adapted for the online space. Um, I thought uh, the way things were laid out was really interesting. I had already had an experience with it, um, the process, because they used a similar system to TIFF. Um, so like the appointment screenings were interesting, um, the access times were interesting. Um, I, in terms of like the films that are available to industry versus the films that are available to the press, there was actually less films available for the industry. But in terms of watching, it was really interesting to watch a film at home, like a big, a big movie at home. Um, you like it's. Um, watching Lovers Rock at home, I remember waiting entirely too late to watch it, and I had not enough time to watch it. Like uh, within my accredited time, and being like, ah, this would have been. I should have taken advantage of this and watched it more than once within that time limit. Um, and I think that was like an interesting aspect of like watching a film at home, which was, I could go back, I could pause it and revisit and look at it. And I thought that was an interesting way to watch it um, for a lot of these movies. Nomadland was a movie that I just watched the entire thing through because I wanted to stay true to it. But it, it's an interesting experience watching a movie in which you have control over how much you engage with it. Um, and I think New York Film Festival is very much usually like you go into a theater, it's an entire experience and there's a talk afterwards and that's the film. And this was like, it was just, it was a, it's a different way to experience a film. I don't necessarily think one is good or bad, but it was interesting, especially um, doing after doing it for Toronto as well, to just like uh, engage with films 
in a way in which I had complete control over how I liked it. If I didn't like a scene, you could, I didn't do that, but like you could skip over something or you can turn off the sound on something. Um, I thought that was an interesting way to see some of these films. Um, and like that, like, I, I don't know if that's like uh, my experience overall, like getting access to films and watching films is great. But for me, ultimately it's um, how does virtual festivals affect the way that I see the film? Like, would I have liked um, red, white, and blue more if I'd seen it in a theater? Like, um, would I have liked all of them if they were shown as one group of movie, like City Hall style, where I'm watching a movie for like four hours? Um, is City Hall made actually more so uh, an easier film to digest because you're watching it on your computer and you can pause it and you don't have to sit in a room for four hours? Um, would they have broken it up if it were actually at the theater? Um, so like those sort of things are like interesting to me um, in terms of like my experience watching a film. So yeah, I thought it was an overall like really great experience. I thought the film's really lovely. I thought it was really well curated for a year that's really complicated. Um, and I love the mix of like joy and like crazy <laughs> that was like curated for the films. Um, and then like the emotional devastation, of course. Um, and I thought it was a nice mix of different type of storytelling this year. Um, and I probably, yeah, so I thought it was an, it was an interesting festival. No, I fully agree. I haven't been to New York Film Festival being from California, but I have been to different film festivals, including AFI Fest, um, quite a few times. And much more even than just like being able to control the sound and stuff, being that I bought my own tickets for most of these, like and other than the major releases, it was a window of like multiple days you could view the film in and you get complete control over like what mood you're in when you go in to watch a film. Like when you go to a physical film festival, you don't really get a lot of options. You get your ticket and whether it's, you know, 8 a.m. in the morning and you don't really want to see this film, you got to sit down and you got to watch it at that time because you just can't control it. With online film festivals, there isn't that sense of like, um, forced like control like that sense of schedule isn't there which I think is both a really good thing and a really bad thing you can make sure that you're in the mood for a film if you're not in the mood for you know a psychological thriller let's say just random example you don't have to watch one then you can watch whatever mood you're in to a point um, but I think also for the larger films especially though there's that sense of just genuine like hype of just like go that's probably not the best word to use not the most eloquent word but like going in and sitting down and looking at the you know blank screen and thinking oh i'm gonna see you know nomadland now i'm gonna see you know french exit whatever it is um like undoubtedly that like festival setting i think was lost on a virtual platform granted it's more accessible to a lot of people granted obviously we also just can't have a physical festival right now so you know major props for new york film festival putting this on doing their best um, ultimately, though, it was just like a strange experience. It made me really miss going to a physical film festival, even though I don't think the experience was bad overall. I think overall it was a quite good experience, um, but it really made me reappreciate how much, like rethink how much I appreciate normal physical film festivals, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so for me, I don't know, I'm someone who really loves going to the cinema. I'm all in for that and I actually I tend to well I used to struggle watching films at home because I went to the cinema so much so I didn't get that same immersion that I would get but and I and I had that still recently during you know the the earlier part of the lockdown in March April May June I found it kind of hard I was very behind on a lot of new releases and stuff um, but I've got used to it I did TIFF before and then New York sort of overlapped with it. And I 
thought it was really good because number one, never normally would I be able to go to New York or go to Toronto or something like that. I'm from London, so I normally go to the European festivals like, you know, the London Film Festival, Glasgow, Zurich or something. So for me, the best thing about the festival was being able to access those films that I normally wouldn't be able to get to, normally due to it just being so expensive to go all the way over to America, say for New York, right? So that was the best thing for me. And I got used to the format and I liked that you had at least 48 hours to watch films. Whereas I know I keep on comparing it, but it was more recently, the London Film Festival, their press schedule for their screenings online was really bad because they only gave you like an hour. And like, if the film went off, you just couldn't see the film. So I think New York did a really good job with the press screenings. And, you know, even I couldn't access French Exit, but then, you know, like this, the publicist sent it to me. And so it was really nice that they accommodated for people outside of America. And I think the accessibility is the best thing about this year's New York Film Festival. And yes, obviously it would have been incredible to go to the actual New York Film Festival, you know, like last year I saw like those of pictures of like Martin Scorsese and stuff attending the Irishman premiere. It would have been amazing to see like Francis McDormand there or someone like that. Um, but I think they did a really good job uh, with what they had and I was thoroughly impressed. Yeah, same here. So I also got the chance to cover TIFF as well. So this was actually my third virtual film festival after Fantasia as well. And each one was very different in terms of how they handled it, but they, I felt they all handled it pretty well. Um, for TIFF, they had like this uh, Chromecast app. So I was able to watch it directly on my TV. But for this one, um, I had to use an HDMI cable to connect my laptop to my TV, which was fine. It still was fine. Obviously some quality issues every once in a while, but overall it was still a great experience. I also liked the 48 hour window, similar to TIFF as well. So like I could, as Carson was saying, and as, and as Ben said as well. So if I was in the mood to watch something one day, I could watch it. Or like, if I wanted to watch it at a later hour, I could as well. Um, again, missing that sense of community, really the only film in the entire festival season where I felt that sense of like, oh, like, look at this. It's like a premiere, like this sense of community was Nomadland at TIFF, which was like at 8 p.m. And like everyone was buzzing about it at 8 p.m. And that was the only time I actually felt as if it was like, oh, like this big premiere, even though there were, these were all big premieres, but it's just that sense of community was really missing just in general from because of online festivals. But again, that is no one's fault. We're all in these circumstances together. So I... This was definitely, like I said, New York did the best they could and the best they could do was pretty damn good because all these films, um, a lot of them actually, there were, as Frida said, there were actually a few that weren't like that you weren't available on the press platform. But as Ben said, uh, the publicists for like On the Rocks um, and Time as well were very kind and they they immediately sent um, the screeners so that we could watch them as well as part of our coverage. So I do appreciate that as well. But overall, again, online festivals, uh, New York Film Festival included, they did the best they could and the best they could, again, was pretty great. And again, this was my first time going to New York Film Festival. I'm sure it won't be the last. I cannot wait to hopefully go back next year, whether it be virtual or physical. But New York Film Festival is definitely one that I want to keep on my list as I really enjoyed it.
I was just going to actually ask the question of the group. Are there, were there any films specifically like where you felt that like being in a room with people to watch it would have enhanced the experience of the film? Like any film that you think would have changed if you were in a room or any, and then vice versa, are there any films do you think benefited from you being home? I think um, specifically Lovers Rock because I had the experience because um, the London Film Festival was a few weeks after and they did half online, half in person. And even though the capacity was down and you know they took out like two seats between everyone, I got to experience Lovers Rock like at New York online, but then also in a room with a you know a full as can be cinema in London and that really made a difference like I loved it even more because there was the atmosphere and I think that's the perfect film out of this festival that I would say really would have benefited and I think a lot more people would have truly loved um, if they saw it in you know like a room full of people. Yeah for me um, I'd say actually there's ones that benefited from both but one well I mean again most of these films would have benefited from watching in the theater, especially I'd say Nomadland. Nomadland was great, but I feel like it would have even been a greater, like a more visceral experience had it been in a theater. Um, Lover's Rock, I feel I would have enjoyed more if it was in a theater again, because it was much more atmospheric. And again, the bigger the screen for atmospheric films like those, the greater the experience. And again, French and uh, French Exit as well. I feel like watching it at home really like, made it like get into that that um that style that i was talking about of like kind of just being like a a hallmark movie that you'd put on um just out of the blue and the fact that it was at home kind of really like reinforced that stigma for me and maybe if i had watched it in theaters um that would have been a better experience for me as well but honestly i feel like there weren't many other films that would have like drastically changed my opinion had they been in a theater I mean, I think pretty much any film would have been helped by being in the theater. I agree a lot on Nomadland and French Exit, um, but there's also just those passive films like Naturno, uh, Swimming Out Till the Sea Turns Blue. Those are both documentaries. Um, even Night of Kings, you know, to a point that are very passive that would have worked best on the big screen where you're kind of forced to fully engage with it and give it all your attention. The only film I think that really benefited from the online format was City Hall, as you mentioned, just like if I was sat in a theater for four and a half hours straight watching that. I would have been so, so bored by the end of granted still a very taxing experience at times from home, but you do have that opportunity to take a break and pause and go to the bathroom or I'm going to get lunch. Or I'm going to, you know, send a text or whatever. Um, it's definitely like a better setting than in the theater. But other than that film, I think literally like every film would have been improved by being on the big screen. But I think the ones I mentioned specifically would be the big ones. For me, what I found interesting were, cause I've seen, I carry you with me in a, theater and then also on a small screen and I think it actually I don't think it was better on a small screen but I do think it was a film that did translate well to watching it at home um so I think there are also I just I think it's a lot of the time we're very because we're like film people super obsessed with like being in a theater in that experience but I do think some films the quieter films sometimes can be really impactful at home as well and I thought that was interesting for me as a person who's like a theater like person who like loves to go to theaters. I had AMC stubs. I'm like going to go see everything at a theater, go to an independent theater. Um, I think one of the things about virtual festivals is allowing me to see that some films I really could just watch 
at home and I don't lose some of the story and I don't feel lose some of the, the feeling for it. To round out Clappercast, the global film podcast, we like to end on each of our personal top three picks of the entire festival. So Carson, what were your top three of New York Film Festival? So for me, my top three, starting from number three, and then I'll work my way to one, number three was French Exit. It's just, I mean, it's a poetic film that just worked for me. Um, It won't work for a lot of people, and I fully appreciate and respect that. I'm sure we'll have an interesting conversation once more people can see it, but it really just worked for me and just pulled me into its world. Number two was Hopper Wells. I think this was a fantastic documentary, Uh, like truly one of the most engaging two hours of cinema I've seen this year. Um, For a film I really was worried about getting bored during and just like losing interest in, um, it fully hooked me. And then number one, as I mentioned, my favorite film of the year so far, Nomadland, just absolutely incredible. Um, Just fantastic. I don't know what else to say about it. Farida? Um, My top three, um, no order, because I have a hard time ranking things. Um, Lover's Rock, which I've talked quite a bit about. uh, Nomadland, of course, because it's just stunning. It's probably going to be my favorite film at like every festival. I'll just keep rewatching it. Um, and then uh, this is like the the harder one for me. Um, I think it's I Carry You With Me. I really was kind of just going for like a happy mood. And then, like it's it's a movie that really just felt like a hug. So like I, I really enjoyed it. And I think it's the movie that I could keep going back to. It's not necessarily the one that I think was like, the strongest film out of everything there, but I do think it's a movie that I see myself mentally revisiting a lot more. And Ben? Um, For me, well, I think Mangrove is probably my favorite film of the festival. I thoroughly loved it. And I think my number two is French Exit. Um, Like Carson said, it just really worked for me. I thought the quirky nature of it all, the screenplay, the acting, and just the whole, you know, the way the film was presented to us, I think was just perfect for me. Um, and then for number three, it's a hard pick between Red, White and Blue and Undine, but I would probably say Undine just a tiny bit over Red, White and Blue. I just really was mystified by the film. And I think the ambiguities behind it have just kept me thinking about this film ever since I watched it. So yeah, it's really stuck with me. And my personal picks would be at number three, Red, White, and Blue. As I said before, uh, it's a great character study. Um, got some mixed response, but it personally resonated with me a lot. Number two would have to be Mangrove. Again, I liked how it was innovative with its structure. I liked that it was McQueen in what he's known for at his finest. And number one, again, just like Farida said, this is one that I'm probably going to rewatch and rewatch and Every time a ranking is mentioned, I'll probably have it up here. But No My Land was my clear favorite. Um, I watched it at TIFF. I watched it again here. And it's just it's just so stunning. And I really feel it's it's definitely going to be known as one of the best of the year in the years to come. So that's it for this week's episode of Clappercast, the global film podcast. So where can we find everyone on social media? Carson? You can find me on Letterboxd, just the name Carson Tamar, or on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews. Farida? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Too Much Telly. Um, that's my moniker. Ben? Um, you can you can find me um, on Twitter at the DC TV show, or I write film reviews on discussing film, so you can go check them out there. 
And you can find me on both Letterboxd and Twitter at, at the Diego Andaluz, and that's A-N-D-A-L-U-Z. And you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and Clapper LTD on Twitter, as well as at the Global Film Pod on Twitter. And we are also on all podcast platforms. Make sure to rate, subscribe, or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. And thank you all for listening, and we will be back next week to discuss all things cinema. To celebrate our one-year anniversary over at Clapper, we have commissioned over a dozen horror clothing designs ranging from Midsummer, Hereditary, Get Out, Raw, and classic characters, new and old, that can be found on Bonfire. You can find the link in the description below. Thank you for listening.